So I have a confession to make to you today. I have a love-hate relationship with my dental hygienist. <clears throat> now, some of you know her, I guess. Uh, actually, some of you do know her. Uh, you, some of you go to my dentist. Uh, not that he's mine, but at any rate, a lot of us go to the same. Uh, she seems like a really sweet person on the surface, uh, especially when you're out there in the waiting room and everybody's looking. But then when she gets you back there into that uh, torture, I mean that examination room, uh, she turns into Attila the Hun. I mean, it's, it's scary. I call her just bad cop, never a good cop, just the bad cop. Um, but she has, actually, she's not that bad. She's really wonderful. I just like to give her a hard time. And uh, she's convinced me recently to buy an electric toothbrush. <laughs> uh, and since she scares me so much, I had no choice. So, um, and so I have purchased a Philips Sonicare electric toothbrush. And I see some heads nodding, some thumbs up. And uh, she says that I have to deal with the buildup of plaque on my teeth. I know this is way too much information for you. Uh, I have my dental examination records that we'll be examining on the, on the overhead here in a moment. Uh, and here's my x-ray. No, I'm just teasing. Uh, so she says, I've got to deal with this. And I have to admit to you that learning how to use this toothbrush has really messed with my head. I mean... <clears throat> I've been brushing my teeth the same way for the last 50 plus years, but apparently that's not good enough. And so now I'm having to learn a whole new way of brushing my teeth. I'm having to retrain my brain. I'm having to forget muscle memory. And I am having to uh, work at learning a new way. So what, here's what you have to do. You have to just take that vibrating toothbrush and you have to just hold it over each one of your teeth and gently move it back and forth. So all of my up and down, back and forth, all around vibrations that I used to do, that's not good enough. And I just realized that what I'm supposed to do is just hold it and let it do its job. And I kind of thought about that with respect to the gospel. It feels like how the gospel works. The gospel changes everything. And a lot of times we think that it's our effort and our methods that get the job done. When in actuality, it's the power and effectiveness of the gospel that changes us. It's not something we do. It's something that's been done for us. It's not that we can save ourselves it's that he saved us. It's not what we accomplished for ourselves. It's what he accomplished for us. And being shaped by the gospel is not just a one-time event. Certainly it is. That moment that you are awakened. And I love this phrase and I've used it and I hope I don't embarrass Joran. But I loved it when Joran described what God did in his heart. He said he popped my heart open. And I... I I love the, the authenticity of what God does to us. And that is important. But we are responding to the gospel all the time. Yeah. And it is our job to just 
hold it in front of our lives and let it shape us and change us and transform us and renew us and remove all of that built up sin that we have been trying to rigorously get rid of on our own. The gospel is there to do it for us. There's a really big misconception when it comes to the gospel. And I've touched on this before, but I really want to cement this in our understanding because a lot of Christians have some misunderstandings surrounding how we respond to God and his gospel. You see, a lot of people think that there are really only two possibilities of how we respond to God. You either um, accept him and do his will or you reject him and do your own thing. And in theory, that's true. Uh, Those that accept him, uh, they are called sons of God. Those that believed on his name and those who reject him, uh, they have not that benefit. In fact, their fate is so much worse, eternal damnation. But you can reject God in more ways than one, and that's the critical nuance to this. You can reject God by refusing his law and living any way you see fit, but you can also reject God by embracing his law and living as if you can earn your own salvation. It's every bit as much a rejection of the gospel to think you can earn your way into it as it is deciding you don't need it at all. And so there are these two enemies we described on either side of the gospel, a moralistic view that you can earn it or a passive, pessimistic, liberal view that says, I don't care. But both are rejections of the gospel. Now, Tim Keller says this, irreligion is avoiding God as Lord and Savior by ignoring him altogether. But religion is avoiding God as Lord and Savior in an effort to show that he owes you. And neither religion nor irreligion or moralism or relativism is the appropriate response to God and his good news of salvation by grace through faith. The only proper response is what he says is worthy Not that we can earn it, not that we should refuse it, but that we should freely accept his gift. The Bible is full of stories of people that are in either one of these two categories. Those that are religious and think they can earn their way into good standing with God and those that are irreligious and think, well, I've either ruined so much, there's no way, there's no hope for me, or I just don't care. And the Bible is full of stories of these two different camps Maybe the most widely known is the story we're looking at today, a very widely known story. You probably, I would seriously think, have heard it before. It's a story about a father who has two sons, and the younger son came to him and demanded that the father give to him his inheritance to share at that moment with him the property that was coming to him. Now, the only problem was That property wasn't owed to him until the father died, and the father is very much alive. And so, basically, this ungrateful son is saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. 
That's the only way that it would be legitimate for him to receive his inheritance. I just assumed you were dead because your things matter more to me than you do. It was insulting. Can you imagine how hurt that must have made his father feel? The son would have been... uh, would have been owed at the father's death a third of what the father owned because he had an older brother who was owed two-thirds, double portion. And so this boy would have owed, been owed a third, but the dad would have had to have died for him to inherit that. And so what it meant was the father had to go liquidate assets. He had to sell land. He had to sell livestock in order to have the cash to give this inheritance. He couldn't just, he couldn't just Venmo the cash to him. There was no... Apple Pay back in that day. He couldn't cash in a mutual fund. He had to actually liquidate and sell land. It was demoralizing for a family for him to have done that. Surprisingly, that's exactly what he does. He gives the boy his inheritance. And you know the story. The son takes off to a far country and he he blows through all of his money. He squanders it on wild living. And And eventually he finds himself at rock bottom because there's a famine in this far off country and all he can find anything to do is to to be hired out to serve slop to pigs. And so he is feeding these pigs, he's starving and he's envious of what he's feeding the pigs. It's like, I wish I could eat that. Pig slop. What a pitiful place for this boy to be in. He's wasted it all. Some of us can relate. Some of us have wound up in a pig pen before. Some of us sitting here know what that feels like, where you've squandered everything and you've wasted your life on wild living. And you've hit rock bottom. But even still, when you felt that way, you can also feel like, well, he got what he deserved, right? I mean, he made bad choices. You reap what you sow. And so we kind of understand that why he's been rejected is because he rejected the father and now he's living in his own mess. But I want you to remember that this is a good news story. This is the gospel. And and the son comes to a moment of clarity and his lostness, he all of a sudden comes to his senses is what the Bible says. I love that phrase. He comes to his senses. And I, I think that gives hope for anyone who is in the pig pen today. There's a moment where you can come to your senses. And he says to himself, he's thinking, you know, even my father's hired hands have it better than I do right now. I know what I'll do. Uh, He's working this speech out in his head. I'll make a speech and I'll I'll return to my father and and I know I'm not worthy to be his son. I have cut those ties. But maybe he would hire me. Maybe he'd employ me and I could at least have food to eat. And that leads us to the very second, the next second surprising part of the story. The first is that the father would give it to him in the first place. That's stunning. But the second part of this story that's so stunning is that as this hungry, broken, pig-smelly son makes his way back home, we sense that the father has been looking for his return the whole time. (laughs) Here's how Jesus tells the story. Verse 20 of Luke 15. And he arose and came to his father, and while he was still a long way off, 
His father saw him and felt compassion and, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. <laughs> but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine, for this my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And they began to party. It was unheard of for a Jewish patriarch, a father such as this, to run anywhere to anyone. It was undignified and especially undignified to run towards a son who had rejected and shamed him in such a public way. That was so beneath a man of dignity. And yet, imagine this father hiking up his robes and running full speed towards his boy. Imagine the what it looked like. Here's this boy who's made a spectacle of himself, who's embarrassed his family, who has gone and squandered all of this wealth, and now his dad is not embarrassed to run to him. What a peculiar father this must have been, who puts his own reputation on the line for a worthless son. And instead of judgment and harsh words and a reprimand, he gives him a kiss and a bear hug and falls on his neck. Before the son could even finish his speech, he only got like two sentences in. And the father just said, stop it. I don't want to hear any of that. Before he could even finish what he was going to say, he's like, bring the boy the best robe in the house and put new shoes on his feet and put a ring, a signet ring on his finger. And kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a barbecue tonight. Most people think that the word prodigal means lost or rebellious or wayward. But the word actually means spending money or resources recklessly. It means extravagantly wasteful. It means giving on a lavish scale. So while it's understandable that we all feel like we can call this son a prodigal because he burned through all of his inheritance, you can also call the father a prodigal because he lavished upon his son complete forgiveness an unmerited favor and reckless love and extravagant grace. We serve a prodigal God. At this point, you'd think, wow, what a story Jesus tells. And surely they just live happily ever after. But remember, the father had two sons. And the elder son vividly shows the other way that you can reject the gospel. Look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near the house, and he heard music and dancing. I told you it was a party. 
barbecue and dancing and music. Wow. And he called, the older brother did, one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. And so his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he can't even call him his brother. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and now he is alive. He was lost, and now he is found. It's interesting to me that we don't know what the older brother does. It's almost as if God, Jesus, just puts it out there and leaves it hanging as to pose the question to every one of us, what would you do? Once again, we see the father going out to a son, going out after a son. The father's heart hasn't changed for either one of them. But this time, the one who stayed is the one he's going out after. The one who did everything right is the one he's going after. Why is this elder son so upset? Well, while his younger punk brother was out doing all the things that he would have wanted to do, he was busy staying at home, studiously working and proving himself to his father that he was the better son, the more honorable son, the more diligent son, the one who was owed something. But in the end, these two sons weren't all that different from each other, were they? The elder brother cared about the same thing the younger brother cared about originally. They just went different ways to achieve it. What did they both care about? Well, they both wanted the father's things, but neither of them wanted the father's heart. And while the younger brother was trying to control his life by breaking all the rules... The older brother was trying to control his life by keeping them. And in the end, Jesus shows us that they're both lost. Both wanted what the father had, but neither of them wanted the father. Like I've already said, there are two ways of rejecting God. Rejecting him and his good news. There are two kinds of lostness. You can reject God by rebelling against him, refusing his gift of salvation, and doing life your own way. Many of us have done that. Some of us may still be trying to do that. You see people all around us that are doing that. You can rebel against him, you can refuse his gift, and you can take what you think is yours and run with it. But 
you can also reject him by staying at home and doing what he said. And this is the warning for Christians. Because we're less likely to grab our inheritance and run, though some of us have. That was me. I did that. We're more likely to stay at home and try to prove ourselves. Try to live a righteous life so as to make sure God knows he owes us something. We follow the rules to the best of our ability. We hold out hope that somehow our good behavior is going to get us a golden ticket. Religious moralism is as much a rejection of God as open rebellion. We like to think that we're good, and if we're good enough, we'll be saved. And if you're bad enough, you won't be. In fact, I hear people say this, and you have too. Well, I'm a good person. God will let me in heaven. It's based off of what I do, right? If I'm good enough, I mean, if I'm just 51% good, surely that just tips me over the line. We have some people think, well, if you weren't so good on this life, maybe when you get into this holding pattern, we could all pray you over the line. Neither are true. There is no good, good enough to get into heaven. None of us. That's why the Bible says in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. Well, Bill's righteous enough, right? No. No, Sam, Sam, Sam's pretty good. No, Sam's not good enough. Jim Rector, we know he's, well, he's not good enough. Not one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. It's no wonder that all the religions of the world are based on works. What's unfortunate is that Christianity often becomes the same way. And that is not the gospel. You do not earn your way into good standing with God, into his presence, or into heaven by being good. You can't be good enough. Grace doesn't make any sense to us, but it is the only way by which we can be saved. By his grace, through faith, that what he said he would do, he has done, and that now we are made righteous in his sight because of the sacrificial gift of Jesus hanging on the cross for our sins. Grace doesn't make sense. It's scandalous. It's beyond comprehension. It's reckless. It's the Father hiking up his robe and running towards us. This is the gospel message. What a prodigal God would do is he would lavishly love us and run towards us and embrace us in our pigsty filth, stinking all, and then throw his arms around our neck and kiss us and rejoice that we've come home. He puts on his he puts on us the best robe in the house. He, he puts new shoes on our feet. He puts a ring that indicates we are no longer orphaned. We are no longer outcast. We are children of the living God. We're sons and daughters of him. We belong. We're in the family. Not because we smell good or look good or did good, but because he is good. 
We are now members of his family. And that's the gospel, that he made a way that we couldn't, that he saved us when we couldn't, that he accomplished for us what we couldn't. He's willing to also go after the older brothers too. That's the kind of father he is. He's willing to go after those who stayed at home. He may be going after some of us today. You see, the older brother attitude can creep in so sneakily where we start assuming that we've gotten our salvation so now we can be a little superior. We can be a little judgmental. We can be a little, mm-hmm, shouldn't be doing that. Well, if they would just listen to me. We start deciding that other people don't live up to what we think they should live up to. But neither did we. It took Jesus for any of us to be of value to God. And so why would we slip into being older brothers when every one of us have been the younger brother? How do we find ourselves in a judgmental, moralistic, legalistic, religious standpoint? And yet so many Christians do. It all reveals to us that God is not looking for good people. He came to make new people. I wonder which son of you, excuse me, which son you identify with. Are you the older, hardworking son who is also hard-hearted and judgmental? Or just snippy, just short-tempered, impatient, intolerant, deciding that people can't ever be good enough? Are you the young, full-hearted son who's just run off, taking what you think belongs to you, even though it doesn't, and just blown through it? And now you find yourself sitting with a bunch of pigs. It's dirty and smelly. Maybe you should pray about that this week. Which son do I more identify with? And by the way, at different points in our lives, we can be on different sides of the fence. And what does it mean to know a father so radically that he would run after us. He would hike up his robe and he would undignify himself and chase after us and throw his arms around our neck despite the lack of common sense that that means, the lack of dignity it would indicate. He grabs us with a bear hug and he lays kisses all over us and he says, now you're home, let's party. Please, please understand that our salvation has nothing to do with our achievements or how good we are. Because the real hero of this story is the father. The one who loves both of the sons. The one who loves them regardless of where they are. The one who will run after them and come after them, wanting them to come home and receive what he's done for them. Because our Father desires that no one should perish. Amen. This morning we're going to receive at the Lord's table. And we have, by God's grace, uh, made it through to a point where we can do it in a more normal fashion. You don't have to peel little cellophane wrappers away. 
Thank you, Lord. And so we are going to come, and what better thing to do, there is nothing better to do than to come to his table with this gospel message that the Father is looking for us to come home. And so Donna and I, we're going to pray over the bread, which is the body of Christ, and the wine, which is the cup of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus. And I'd like to ask all of those that are helping us with uh, serving the Lord's table today, if you would go ahead and come up and get your tray of bread and your tray uh, of the wine. Don't worry, it's grape juice, but you know, Jesus didn't say grape juice. I think it was wine in the Bible. And uh, they're going to come in place in stations so that you can come as families, as individuals, as couples, or as friends. Uh, I'd love for you to come with other people. And if you see someone that's alone or that's not in a group, have them come join your group. That's what, that's what this is all about. And, uh, and then we're going to pray for these elements and then ask you to begin to come forward. And at, at these places, they're going to serve you communion and pray over you uh, in an expedited way. But if you're in need of further ministry, uh, we're going to also offer two prayer teams. Bill and Nancy are going to be over here in this corner, and they would be able to pray for you in a more intimate, more directed way. And then Roger and Ray will be over here in this corner, and they'll be able to do that for you as well. So if you're in need of ministry beyond at the table here, then feel free to go and have ministry in those, in those areas there. I'd like for us as we do this to give you some instructions. Let's, let's be mindful to keep our focus on the Lord and, and serve one another and be careful with our noise levels and what we're doing so that we can encourage this moment with the Lord. So Don is going to share and then pray for the bread, and then I will pray for the cup. I want to read a portion of um, Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. He says, picture a long, narrow ridge with a sheer drop-off on either side. The chasm to the right is human striving for righteousness. The chasm to the left is the absence of human striving. Just making whatever comes easy. But on the ridge, there is a path. It's the disciplines of the spiritual life that come to us through the power of the gospel. As we travel on this path, the blessing of God comes upon us and reconstructs us into his image. The path does not produce the change. It only places us where the change can occur. And so when I pray for us for the bread today, This is one of those places where the change can occur. Mm -hmm. Communion is the divine exchange. You give up whatever you came with, and you get to walk away with what he died to provide. That's right. Don't miss the opportunity to trade what you have and let the change actually happen. Not the hope of it, but the real thing. Yes. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to your table yes, we do. and acknowledge that whichever son we are, you are the Father. Mm-hmm. You have what we need, that we should rest in the righteousness that you have provided, that we receive 
all that you have given your son to purchase for us, that we would say yes to you, as Patrick said earlier today. And so when we take the bread, that's what we're doing. By eating your life, by receiving you, we let go of who we are apart from you. We put down our filthy righteousness to receive your real righteousness. We take this bread in honor of your sacrifice and as a sign of our willingness to obey. Lord Jesus, we do these things in remembrance of you. We know that you instituted this meal and that we're to do it until you come again, until the marriage feast of the Lamb. (laughs) And what a party that will be. And so today, we remember the sacrifice that you made for us, the blood that you shed, that you died our death, took upon yourself the chastisement of our peace, the punishment of our peace, the things that we deserved, you put them on yourself so that as Donna has prayed, we could put on righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that these realities of what has indeed happened would be a future back moment where what is yet to come will keep us propelled towards you and your purposes living in your grace towards one another and all those that we meet, sharing this good news that Jesus came to save sinners. We commit our ways to you and remember you in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.